0: thanks for all of you all, all of you guys being here today. I appreciate the opportunity to hear the word with you guys and um, open up God's word and learn from it with you guys. Um, if you haven't already you can open your Bibles to Ephesians 5 um, 25 through 33 that's where we're going to be camping out today. Uh, last semester in fall we began working our way through Ephesians uh, starting uh, the, kind of the, our theme was a body in motion meaning the church as the body. And uh, that's kind of been our our guideline for going through Ephesians is is, is the church, looking at it from the the perspective as the church. Um, In the last several weeks, Tyler has been talking about gender roles and the like, and it's it's a difficult topic to discuss, obviously, particularly being on campus. Um, One of the more volatile subjects that, that you can find or talk about in our society today is gender roles, and it's not an easy thing to talk about, it's not an easy thing to, um, to discuss without there being some kind of hostility present. Um, but we need to be clear that, that Scripture is not silent on gender roles, Scripture is not silent on sexuality, not on marriage. Um, scripture has something to, to say. And Scripture being our ultimate authority, we must submit to it. And when our feelings, or our passions, or our desires, come in conflict with Scripture. Um, we have to check that. We have to. We have to reconcile what we believe, what we think, and what we want with Scripture. And Scripture is always going to win. Scripture is our authority. And so, as it regards gender roles, what we've been talking about, Scripture is our authority, as with everything else. And so, we submit to that. We believe that. <clears throat> now, obviously. Um, probably not every one of you is going to be on board with that. It's, it's. I mean, we're on a college campus, it's difficult things, I mean, probably bristled at everything I just said and turned turned off and tuned out, but understand, as we talk about gender roles, as we talk about relationships, and as we talk about um, Ephesians, it's all undergirded with the gospel. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, is, is the gospel. Because that's what Paul does. He makes, he, he preaches the gospel and then Tells us what it means and tells us how to live in light of it. And in, when he's telling us how to live in light of it, he's still preaching the gospel through that. And so that's what we're looking at tonight: is is the gospel, and in particular, um, we're going to be talking about love tonight. Love was mentioned a handful of times in, in the in the passage that Tyler was. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This. There you, go. for there you go. All right, we're good. We're good. Um, he doesn't
1: have his degree yet. So I can't, I
0: <laughs> Thanks. are good. So yeah, tonight we're going to be talking about love. Um, talking about love. So I'm excited. I'm really excited. Um, and as I mentioned, we're, we're moving our way through Ephesians. Um, oh, I did that. Sorry. A little flustered. So oh yeah, we are uh, we're at a disadvantage in our society uh, right now, particularly in our in our current culture because words don't mean the same things that they used to words don't have the impact that they used to they don't have the gravity that they used to i mean when you think about old english like real english like britain english like victorian english hundreds and hundreds and thousands of words have been lost from then to now in the english language words just don't have the same meaning um One of my—if you guys have seen um, Dead Poets Society, one uh, awesome movie, Um, Robin Williams plays a a character called John Keating, and he has this to say about language in the English language. Um, Avoid using the word very because it's lazy. A man is not very tired, he is exhausted. Don't use very sad, use morose. Language was invented for one reason, boys, to woo women, and in that endeavor, laziness will not do. It also won't do in your essays. I love that, one. and I love that quote. But it's it's it, it, it's just so it's so clear where we are as our, in our in our society with language and with words. As we get lazy with words. We use word, extreme words to communicate the mundane and the common. We we use words intended to communicate extreme emotional feelings, extreme emotional highs and lows, to communicate things about chicken wings. I mean, look at, look, look at the word awesome for example, um, we, we live in Montana, it's, it's not hard to find awesome things in Montana, God's creation in the mountains and in the trees and lakes and waterfalls, I mean, we live in a glorious country and God has truly created something awesome in Montana. The new Call of Duty game is not awesome compared to that, it's not awe-inspiring. Um, and look at love, what we're talking about tonight. Um, I'm married and I do truly love my wife, I truly love my wife with all my being. Yet, I use the same word for her as I do for chicken wings, the buffalo wild wings. <laughs> not, exactly, uh, not exactly appropriate. Not exactly, not, it doesn't really communicate my feelings about my wife because I use the same word for chicken wings and my wife. <clears throat> now, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna talk about love tonight, we need to understand love. We need to truly understand what the word love means. We need to truly understand what, what scripture means in this context. When he's talking about love. And so a, a, as we dive into Scripture here tonight, focus on what it means. We're going to talk about what it means. But separate it from chicken wings. Separate it from sports. Separate it from a movie. It's not the same word. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 25-33 once more, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to dive in. So if you got your Bibles or apps or whatever, Ephesians 5, 25-33 Father God, we, we worship you and we thank you so much for just everything you've given us, all of the blessings that you've given us, a school to go to, money to go to that school, friends, family, a place to come and worship you, God. As we open your word tonight, let us focus in on what you have to say, focus in on, on what your your word says, what your revealed word has to teach our hearts tonight. God, help us focus on, on, on Jesus in the scriptures. We like to think it's about... a. A roadmap for us, but, but God, we know that the scriptures are about the gospel. The scriptures are about you, so just let us focus on that and let that penetrate us, God. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So the word love is um, in scripture, and in, in, in the Greek, in particular, in the New Testament, is three different words. It has four, and one of them is not in, in in scripture. But the, the word that, that, that is used in this context in our passage tonight is called agape, and a lot of you probably heard that. Particularly if you've been in Christian circles for a while, you've heard agape love. The term agape love, um, but the definition of agape love is a brotherly love, a brotherly affection, benevolence, and unconditional. Uh, it, it's unconditional. There's no. There, there's. It, it exists despite anything. Okay. And this word appears ten times in the book of Ephesians. The only two books that appears more are 1 Corinthians and 1 John, and we get a lot of those in this, this, these last couple sections here. Okay, We get a lot of those in these next couple sections. sections. Uh, most often, when the, the, the agape love is used in Scripture, it's used in context of Jesus and the, ch- and the church and the cross. Okay? It's used in, when God so loved the world that he gives one only son, it's used in context uh, of Christ dying on the cross, of, of the love that drove him there, of the love God had for his people, that's when agape love is used. And so when we see agape love used here, we have to see it in that context. Okay? The love that God had for Christ, the love that Christ has for us, that's the love that we're talking about. Unconditional. Completely despite. Now Ephesians 5.25, we see the word love here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now I, I told Tyler I could probably spend three hours on this one verse because it 's so rich and means so much um, but if we 're really going to understand what husbands how husbands are, are to love their wives and vice versa, we need to understand how Christ loved the church because that 's what it 's telling us to do so loves Christ love the church so before we get into any of that other stuff, we need to establish what it means what christ 's love means in context with the church. So now let's, let's, and, and, uh, let's read this once more. And I want us to focus on Christ in, in the passage. As much as this is about husbands and wives and, and relationships, it's all about Christ. So I want us to focus on what Christ says. What it says about Christ and Jesus here in the passage. Uh, so Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, we're going to add a couple of verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now we see words here um, like sanctify her, wash her, clean her without blemish, um, all of it implying that there's dirt, that there's there's something nasty, there's something gross about the church. Okay? So there's something wrong with the church. There's something with the, having to do with the church that needs to be removed. Some kind of dirt, some kind of imperfection that needs to be removed. Okay, so now Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, flip back, back a couple of pages, says this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I cut off a little bit on that one. But it's taking it further than just having a little blemish. It's taking it further than being dirty. This passage is saying we're dead. That we're completely dead. That we we don't have a pulse. We're six feet under. It's saying we are completely dead. And so the first point, the first aspect of Christ's love that we're going to look at tonight and begin with is the fact that Jesus loves the unlovable. He loves the unlovable. <clears throat> now, being unlovable means that we have no redeeming qualities. We have nothing about us that inspires love, that inspires God saying, Hey, I want you on my team. Nothing about us that says, pick me, alright? It's, it's completely different than how we, you know, look for spouses or dating dates or whatever. Literally nothing redeeming about us. That's what it's saying here. We have literally nothing redeeming about us. Think about um, Dennis Rodman. You know basketball. I don't think there's a redeeming quality about that guy. If you know, if you don't know who he is, he was a basketball player in the 80s and 90s. Um, he was one of the most hideous human beings on the face of the earth. Um, <laughs> Rainbow hair. He, he, despite being one of the most hideous human beings, he also was a giant jerk. All right. And um, actually, recently he went to uh, North Korea to do uh, what was it? basket uh, a basketball. Uh, what, what did they call it? A, like a, democ- de- a basket- democratic basketball mission so <laughs> you can teach North Koreans how to play basketball because that's what they need. Um, <laughs> anyways, nothing redeemable. That, uh, that's that's what Jesus loves the unlovable, loves the unredeemable. All right? There's no redeeming qualities about us. And we can even take that further because it's not just that we don't have redeeming qualities. It's not just that we don't have anything to offer. It's that we're in active rebellion against God that we're actively seeking to undermine the will of God, to undermine the rule of God. It's not just that we're, that we're dirty and nasty and gross. It's that we, we actively are in pursuit of everything other than God. We're trying to undermine God. Yet, he loved us. He loves the unlovable. And we see pictures of this throughout the Bible. We see guys like, like, like Noah, like... Uh, like Moses, he killed a guy, buried him, and then he was a coward. He ran off. We see Jacob. He's, he's a thief. He stole his brother's inheritance. And then again, he's a coward and ran off. Uh, Abraham, he was a drunk. Uh, the, all the prophets, they were cowards, They, were, they were afraid of everything, afraid of every little thing. And, and, and we see this, all of this, this evil in all these people that God used culminating in, in, in David. This is the guy that God called a man after His own heart, right? He, 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 If you don't know what happened with David, what David did is he he was king of Israel, and he saw this this beautiful woman bathing on a roof. I don't know why he bathed on a roof, but, anyways, she's bathing on the roof, and 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 he was into her, and he took her, and they you know did their thing, and husband came home, and husband. So that in order for the husband not to find out about it, he sent him to the front lines so that he'd die in war. So he killed him in war. Basically, he committed adultery. He stole a guy's wife. He murdered a guy. He tried to cover it up. And then when someone confronted him with it, he said, Oh, yeah, we need to kill the guy that did that, not realizing that he was the guy that did that. He was an idiot. He, he, he did that. he did. I guarantee you he's worse than anyone in here has ever been. Yet this is the guy that God called the man after his own heart. Jesus loves the unlovable. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, how much you drank last night, how many, how many, times, how many one-night stands you've had, how many tests you've failed, how, how many times you've been fired. None of it's beyond the redeeming power of Christ. None of it's beyond the love of Christ. Jesus loves the unlovable. The second one we're going to look at tonight, the second aspect of the love of Christ, um, we can find in Ephesians five twenty-five and John three sixteen and 1 Peter 3, 8. So John three sixteen, 16. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, and 1 Peter three eighteen is, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive with us in the spirit so the second aspect we're talking about tonight that we're going to talk about Christ's love tonight in order to get context for a marriage love is self-sacrificing love we see this in the Ephesians 5:25 um, 26 rather that he might sanctify or no yep yeah, 25 my bad husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave himself up for the church. He sacrificed himself. You know know the story of Christ, died on the cross for the sins of the world. It's not just that he died in agony on a cross, he was executed on a cross. It's that the wrath of God that was stored up for all of humanity was poured out on him in that one moment. All the wrath... That we as, the, and that the church would build up every every rebellious act that the church, the Christian would ever do, was poured into a cup and Christ drank it willingly and lovingly. It's a self-sacrificing love. And as Christ died on the cross, so died within the sins of the church. For our sake, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The love of Christ is self-sacrificing. So the love of Christ is, is a self-sacrificing love, and it, it loves the unlovable. Alright? And, and you see the, the final one here, the third one we're going to look at in Ephesians 5, 26 through 27. 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church, the church to himself, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, these verses, as I mentioned before, we're talking about change. Changing from one thing to another, from dirty to clean, from from full of spots and wrinkles to to completely pure. And the word that it uses there is sanctify. And if you've never heard the word before, it can be an intimidating word, but to put a a simple definition to it, to sanctify is to reorient your heart from sin to, to Savior. The reorientation of your heart from sin to Savior. So instead of loving your sin, instead of loving your, whatever it is you love, drugs, alcohol, sex, the easy ones, but wealth, money, power, even your, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, reorienting your heart so that God is first. That's what sanctification is. And it's an ongoing process. If you spend five minutes in a church, it's not hard to see that it's full of sinners. The church is full of sinners. It's, I mean, it should be an encouraging thing. People want to use the, the, uh, the indictment against the church that it's, that it's full of hypocrites. That should be an encouraging thing, to know that you can walk into a church and not be perfect. That you can walk into a church and, 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 and know that you don't have to be perfect. It's okay not to be okay. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says... 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled haste beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is telling us here that our hearts are progressively being grown in the likeness of Christ. That's what sanctification is. Turning your heart from sin to sinner. And Paul is telling us that, 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 that that it takes time. When you you trust in Jesus, when you become a follower of Christ, when the gospel gets a hold of you, it's not as if you automatically become perfect. It's not as if your life is automatically transformed to perfection. It's not as if it's automatic. As I said before, you walk into a church, you see sinners. (coughs) The church is full of sinners. No one's got it figured out yet. That doesn't happen until eternity. So the third aspect of Christ's love that we're going to look at tonight is that Christ's love is a sustaining and sanctifying love. A sustaining and sanctifying love. Ezekiel 36 tells us that that God gives us a completely new heart at conversion, a new soul, a new flesh at conversion. Um, Psalm 51.10. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. All this language implies that you can't change your heart. You can't just decide not to like sin anymore. You can't just decide to be okay. It just, you don't have that power. You don't have that power. The only one that has that power is God. And so sanctification takes a lifetime, and you don't have the power to change your heart, only God can. The love of Christ sanctifies us. It's the love of Christ that that pushes the Spirit to change our hearts. It's the love of God that changes our hearts. It's a loving thing that God does. You can't decide to do it on your own. It's pretty clear that um, you can't do that on your own because, I mean, think about uh, particularly as college students, um, men in particular, but um, increasingly lately, women as well, Pornography is a huge battle in our, in our culture. And I can't tell you when I was struggling with it how many times I just said, done, no more, last time, and then two days later, back in front of the theater. You can't do it yourself. You can't decide to be done with sin. Only God can change your heart, grab a hold of your heart, and change the direction of the affections in your heart. Cool thing about that is, is look at Romans 8 38-39 For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord Jesus loves lasts right? Jesus' love lasts through thick and thin Sanctification takes a lifetime. That's, that's the existence of Christ's love for us on earth. It's our lifetime. Christ will never be done with you. You're never going to be discarded. The love of Christ lasts a lifetime. It's a sustaining love. In its sanctification, he sustains. All right. Now, I'm a, I'm a huge Broncos fan. I'm, I'm a big football fan. Um, not quite as big as other people in here. But uh, I do love, I do love football. And I'm a Broncos fan, unfortunately. And if you know anything about the Super Bowl uh, this last year, it was was rough, it was was a rough couple weeks. Um, But uh, after the Super Bowl, Cody told me, make sure you wear your Broncos gear tomorrow. This is after they got housed, after they got shamed, And I was like, thinking about it, I was like, you know, you're right, if you're gonna be a fan, you're gonna be a fan through thick and thin. You're gonna be a fan when they're terrible. You're gonna be a fan when they get beat by 80 points in the Super Bowl. And um, the worst thing about living in the Northwest for the Super Bowl is the fact that when the Seahawks all of a sudden become good, everyone and their mother becomes a Seahawks fan. (laughs) Everyone becomes a Seahawks fan. I walked into work that next day, and I was wearing my Broncos. I actually wore my Broncos hat, my Broncos socks, and a Broncos shirt because of Cody's push. But I walked in, and all these people—I didn't even know they—I didn't even know they knew what football was. They're all like, "Number one, put the hat away. What are you doing? Pick, hang it up." I was like, are you kidding me? I didn't even know you didn't like football. Get out of here. <laughs> so, anyways, as a fan, as a fan of anything, really, you—you you, you stick with them, They're thick and thin. That's not unlike our faith. Something like love Christ. It sticks with you. When you get housed in the Super Bowl, it sticks with you, all right? So our three aspects that we looked at, a love, of, a love, of the love of, the three aspects of the love of Christ, he loves the unlovable, it's a self-sacrificing love, and it's a sustaining and sanctifying love. So let's quickly look at those and, and apply that to us here, because... Tells us, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So let's look at those three aspects of love. Um, you're called to love despite circumstances. So when you make a commitment to somebody, you love them despite the circumstances. Now, as Christ loved us in our death, as Christ loved us when we had nothing. Redeemable to love when we had when we we're in act of rebellion against Christ. That's how we love men. I'm speaking to men in particular. That's how we love our wives. All right. And I, I understand most of us out in here are not married. Most of us will become married though. And and, the, and these qualities that are required that we're called to in marriage are things that you should be aspiring to. That you should be working towards. All right now now. As Christ loved us and we were unlovable, we need to love despite circumstances. All right. Now I would go as far to say, and I might get rebuked for this later, but I would go as far to say that it is good and it is right to love despite anything that happens, including adultery. When I mean, you hear in Christian circles the only grievance for divorce is adultery, I um, I think despite even adultery, you should sustain your love. For your wife and let me make my case really quick um, as Christians as lovers of Christ and receivers of the gospel our, our number one priority in, in life is, is what? to glorify God Okay, God is supposed to be number one God is on the top, top number one of our priority list and that's where he should stay but does that always happen? no all sin can really be broken down into one thing and that's I- idolatry When we place anything above God on our list of priorities. So any sin, any pursuit of, you you make a compromise to to, to get a good job, you make a compromise to get money, you make a compromise to get something you want. That's putting something else above God. So that's idolatry. All right? Now, if we're looking at the the metaphor of Christ in the church as, as our passages tonight, If if Jesus is supposed to be our ultimate goal of pleasure, of desire, of joy, and we find that somewhere else, that's adultery. And When we we seek pleasure and joy and happiness in something else above Christ, that's adultery. And Christ loves us despite our adultery as believers. Despite our constant sin, he loves us. I heard a story a couple of years ago. I don't know where I found it, so uh, feel free to source it. But uh, it was about these, this married couple, and uh, they were in counseling for their marriage because it wasn't going well. And in their counseling, um, the wife, it came out that the wife had, had committed uh, adultery and her husband had several affairs during their marriage. So as you can imagine, the husband was pretty distraught. And, he left, and he came home that night with with a completely white, spotless, without blemish nightgown. And he told her to put it on. And so she put it on, and he came out. She came out, and what she he said was, "I choose to see you as Christ sees you. That's the love that loves despite circumstances. That's the love that loves despite being unlovable." We need to aspire to that. That's what our Savior does for us. That's where we need to try and get. It's to love despite circumstances. Second, we need need to have a self-sacrificing love. As Christ was self-sacrificing, Jesus put aside his reward. He lived a perfect life, completely sinless, never rebelled against God. Yet what he received was the disdain of men and the wrath of God. And he sacrificed his perfection for us, the church. I Men, as, as, you, as you grow in your faith and as you as you sanctify, you need to learn to be self-sacrificing, to sacrifice your wants, <coughs> your needs, even, for others, particularly as you aspire to marriage. In order to be, to, to be ready for marriage, you need to be able to sacrifice the things that are most important to you. Outside of Christ, outside of the gospel, you need to be able to sacrifice your Xbox, your, your sports on Sunday night, your, your, your football. Whatever it is, you need to be able to sacrifice those things for your wife. Because your wife comes first after Christ. Your wife comes first. You're called to a self-sacrificing love. Third, we're called to a sanctifying love. Now, this one's a little tricky because Christ in our sanctification changes our hearts and he's our savior. And let's be very, very, very clear. Men, you are not Jesus. You are not Christ. You are not a savior. You're not even close. All right? So, as we look at the sanctifying love of Christ and we look at applying that to us, we can't change hearts. But what we can do is be leaders and examples. All right? So in order... To be an example for your wife, you have, you, have, you have to do your devotions. You have to be constant in your devotions. You have to, able, you have to pray. You have, you, have, you have to learn the spiritual disciplines. You have to, in order to lead your wife in exam, by example, you have to do the things that you are, you are called to do as a Christian man. Right? And that's by leading by example. Right? And, the, and the fourth will sustain a sustaining love. Christ's love was sustaining and sanctifying, as well as men, our love should be sustaining. Now, uh, something I've learned about college students, mostly through my experience, is that we're really good at at, at running from things, at um, neglecting things. Um, Actually, when I was in college, I lived with three other dudes and uh, went on a trip, and I forgot to pay the energy bill before I left. And, well, one of the guys was there. The electricity got turned off, and that was not only embarrassing, but he was very angry. <laughs> um, but I just neglected something that was, that was important. I didn't do something that was important. I, I neglected my responsibilities, and, and, and so much, so much of us runs. We run from our problems, right? We, we we put off the studying that horrifying stats exam until the night before, all right? We, we, we run from our problems. We need to learn to face struggle. We need to learn to deal with trial. All right. If you get married and you don't know how to resolve conflicts, you're going to have a bad time. Believe me, it was hard for a while. All right? Conflicts just don't automatically get resolved. You need to learn to resolve those in a godly and biblical manner. You need to sustain your love through that. And if you can't do that, there's going to be an awkward tension. There's going to be a lot of sin. There's going to be a lot of consequences. You need to learn to sustain your love and and deal with conflict. Uh, Let's look at Ephesians 5, uh, 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the cool thing about this verse um, is is that it's an exact quotation from Genesis 2.24. So let's look at Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he'll fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is literally an exact quotation from 5.31. And, And Paul tells us, in five thirty-two, what it means, Ephesians five thirty-two, and I am telling you, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. The Tyler has um, a number of times talked about um, the first appearance of the gospel being in marriage in Genesis, and I never, I never really, I mean, I kind of understood it and I kind of saw it, but I never had concrete evidence for it, <coughs> mostly because I suck at listening. But it's. clear here that the gospel, the marriage of Christ and the church or Christ's love for the church, appears in Genesis 2.24. Paul tells us, this mystery is profound, and I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. And one of the most remarkable things about scripture, one of my favorite things about scripture, is that the entire book of the, the entire Bible points to Jesus. It all works together to point to Christ. All of it. All the stories, all... The Bible stories that, we all, that you learned in Sunday school are the Bible stories that you learn now. David and Goliath isn't about you conquering your giants in your life, the, your boss at work with your five smooth stones. It's about Jesus conquering sin. But we're the Israelites cowering in the background. The whole Bible works together to point to Jesus. And the first time that it clearly and explicitly points to Christ is in Genesis, and it's in marriage. The first time that we see the gospel present is in marriage. That's significant. It's very significant. Marriage is important. I mean, our culture today, 50% divorce rate in, 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 amongst Christians. It's, it's pathetic. It doesn't seem like marriage is that important. To us, something that, that um, KJ, pastor at Sovereign Hope, says is that, uh, I'm not going to get this right, but what's important to God, what's important to Christ, should be important to you. Marriage is clearly important to Christ. It's clearly important to Christ. It needs to be important to us. And, and, and in marriage, marriage is intended to point to Christ. That's what our, our marriages here on earth are intended to point to the gospel. Right, they're intended to point to Jesus. <clears throat> now, men, all right, this is this is one of those, inst- those instances where uh, gender roles and things might get a little volatile, but men, you have a particular responsibility as it regards your marriage. All right? You have more of a, you take the burden when your marriage goes south, or when anything in your marriage goes wrong. We, we, we see evidence of this. Let's look at Turn to Genesis 3, 6 real quick. Um, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. So who ate it first? This isn't a joke, it's serious. <laughs> <laughs> Eve ate it first. All right. She was, she was the initiator. She acted first. All right? She's the one that took the apple and ate it first. It's clear. Now let's look over at 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and Romans 5.12. 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And Romans 5.22, 5, 12, rather. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death shall spread to all men because of all have sinned. So whose fault was it? Who takes the responsibility for that? Adam did. Now, Adam was with her. Adam was there with her, but he didn't grab the food off the tree. Eve didn't. But who bears the responsibility? Adam does. And you have a particular responsibility in your marriage. You have a particular responsibility to point your marriage to Jesus. And I, I know most of you aren't married, and this, this might be difficult to comprehend, but as a man and as a woman... For your marriage to point to Christ, both of you need to point to Christ. If one of you is off track, your marriage isn't going to point to Christ as it is intended to. If one of you's going heading in the wrong direction, facing the wrong direction, your marriage isn't going to point to Christ. I mean, <clears throat> we need to take responsibility. Well, men and women, you need to take responsibility for your actions. We live in a... Look at politics, nobody takes responsibility for anything. One side does one thing and blames the other, and one side does another. This, this nobody takes responsibility. I mean, most of us guys, we don't even put pants on some days. That's how, We don't pay electric bills. That's how irresponsible we are. But what do we always do? We fail an exam and we say it's the professor's fault because he doesn't speak good enough English. It's, it's always somebody else's fault. We suck at work and we say, oh, well, I'm, I'm, my 100% is as good as this guy's 50%, so I'm, I'm doing good. No, you need to take responsibility for what you do if you're gonna take responsibility for your marriage. If you can't take responsibility for yourself, how can you take responsibility for somebody else? So as you aspire to marriage, as you look to pursue a woman or a man Learn to take responsibility. Learn to take responsibility for your actions. We all like to take responsibility for the good things. Learn to take responsibility for the bad things. Now we point to Jesus in our every relationship. That's what what Ephesians has been. Paul preaches the gospel, tells us what the gospel means for all of our different relationships. We're going to continue looking at that. But it's all centered around the gospel. This whole passage that we're looking at tonight, as much as it's about marriage, it's 80% about Christ. It's 80% about Christ and the church. It's about the gospel. The gospel is the engine that drives our every relationship. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. And that because of our love for the gospel, because of what Christ has done, it motivates us in our relationships. It gives us, Not a blueprint, but it gives us principles that guide how we live out our relationships. The gospel undergirds everything we do. And as we aspire to marriage, relationships, and dating, if you don't understand the gospel, and if you don't understand the love that Christ had for the church, you can't understand the love that you're intended to have in marriage. You need to understand the love between Christ and the church. You need to understand the love of God in order to love rightly in marriage. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We recognize your your Lordship and your kingship and your glory, God. We pray that of us in here aren't even close to marriage, but God, we we want your love and we want to emulate your love. We want to leak your love. We want to be so full of your love. We want to be so understanding and, 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 and experiencing of your love that it just flows out of us. God, in order to do that, we need to understand it. God, we nothing in our life means anything without the love of Christ. It means nothing without the gospel. God, we pray tonight that the gospel is the engine that drives everything in us. That the gospel motivates us in our, in our marriage relationships, in our work relationships. God, as we, as we date, as we look to date, as we're married, God, let the gospel be what drives us. And let every relationship we have point to the glory and fame of the name of Jesus.